Hey, welcome to Access. John here. We really hope you'll join us next week because we're beginning a new series called I Have Spirit. Yes, I do. I have spirit. How about you? And while it sounds like we're going to get pumped up for a Friday night football game, it's actually going to be an extensive study on the Holy Spirit that you're not going to want to miss. Today, we're going to talk about how the message of salvation is found in the Jewish tradition of Passover. Yes, you heard me correctly. So stick around and I'll explain what happens when a Christian, a Jew, and Jesus walk into a bar. Today's message is entitled, Observe the Passover. Well, if you're watching your calendars, then you're probably aware that Easter is just right around the corner. And um, I've been wanting to do this this uh, message for uh, a while. I just haven't had a good opportunity to do it. Um, and um, today we are going to talk about the significance of the Passover feast that's not only still being observed by Jews today um, and has been for thousands of years, um, it was observed and recognized by our Lord Jesus and his disciples during the Last Supper. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the Passover and how it relates to the resurrection of Christ and um, and the similarities between the two. So today uh, we're going to you know talk about the Passover meal. And I just want you to know that the Passover meal takes a lot of preparation if you're going to observe it. Scripture tells us in Luke 22, 8, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. This isn't something you just sit down and do. It has to be prepared. Um, and what I want to talk about today is uh, those preparations and, and the deep significance of each item in the Passover. But before I do that, I, however, want to address a, uh, a question that might be surfacing in your minds. You might be thinking, what, are we going to be Jewish now? Like, why are we talking about this? The answer is, no, of course not. Of course we're not going to be Jewish. I don't want to bring this message to convince anyone to abandon their heritage and adopt Jewish traditions. My goal today is to educate and encourage others to see God's great plan of redemption throughout all of history, not just the last 4,000 years. So if we're going to get a glimpse of God's great love for us, then we're going to need to see His hand in the work of our Jewish roots of tradition. You might say, well, John, I'm not a Jew. I don't have Jewish roots of tradition. Well, on the contrary, if you have faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul says that you have been grafted in to the Jewish line. He says in Romans 11, 11, again, I asked, did they, talking about the Jews, stumble so far to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. He goes on to say in verses 17 through 20, If some of the branches have not been broken off, you, though a wild olive shoot, uh, have been grafted in among the others so that you now share from the nourishing sap of the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this, that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Judaism is the root by which we have faith in God. Paul said that uh, several Jews were cut off or cut out of the vine because of their unbelief. So as a Gentile, someone not of Jewish lineage, that's you and me, we too are given an opportunity to receive salvation. Jesus said that the woman at, at the well in John 4:22, uh, he told her at, at the well, he said, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, talking about the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. 
You see, before Christ, there was a stipulation that in order to know the one true God and have a relationship with him, a person had to be a Jew. This created a dividing barrier between Jews, God, and everyone else. However, when Christ was crucified on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The, the, this, this signified that there was no longer a barrier between us and Jews and God, that it was forever removed. Salvation has been made available to all people groups, regardless of their lineage. And you, if you have faith in Christ, you have Jewish roots. The Apostle Paul solidifies this point in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So before you believe that you're separated from a Jew, or even that you are superior because you believe and they don't, know that if we have faith in Christ, it is because of the Jewish lineage and if we have faith in, if we both have faith in Christ, then there is no difference between us. Now, a good question to ask, is it possible for a person to be Jewish anymore if they believe in Jesus? Well, there's a people group that might surprise you. They're called Messianic Jews, Jews that believe Jesus is the Messiah. And I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that I believe Messianic Jews likely have a greater understanding of God and his power than we do because they have insight in how God wove a beautiful picture of redemption through Jewish tradition. The Passover meal is designed to remind Israel that God delivered them from the slavery and bondage of Egypt 4,000 years ago. However, I believe that there is a greater story of redemption that God, using Jewish tradition, wove into a grand tapestry of deliverance from the slavery and bondage of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. So today we're going to begin by reading about the first Passover found in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8 and 12 through 14. Um, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. So uh, I, I'm going to ask you to pay special attention to the elements that we're going to discuss today because if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss something really, really cool. When the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, God raised up Moses to command Pharaoh, let my people go. Now we know from scripture that Pharaoh hardened his heart and he refused uh, to, to uh, acknowledge God and surrender to him. But God, um, God can be very convincing. To convince Pharaoh, God sent 12 plagues upon Egypt. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, cattle disease, boils, um, hail, locusts, darkness, and uh, the tenth plague, which was the worst, the death of the firstborn son. The Jews, however, lived in a section of the city known as Goshen, and they were spared from the first nine plagues of Egypt. But to be exempt from the tenth and final plague, God gives them special instructions using a lamb. And that's where we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 12, verses 5. Through eight. So what it says, the animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all of the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight, six o'clock. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
Now, in this passage, God instructs Israel to take a lamb, sacrifice it, cover the door frames of their door with its blood, and he tells them not to eat any bread or yeast uh, with yeast or leaven in it. You might think, well, why is this such a big deal? Because all throughout the Bible, God uses yeast to symbolize sin. And the reason why is because yeast will grow. Sin will grow. And uh, all throughout the Bible, God uses this to symbolize sin. For example, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6, 6, 16, 6, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was speaking, of course, to their sin. Now, in the Bible, yeast or leaven equals sin. So unleavened bread or matzah, uh, the Jewish phrase, the Jewish term for, for unleavened bread, matzah, is the symbol for purity. And this will be especially important later on. Um, so let's keep reading verse 12 through 14. It says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come that you shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So in case you're wondering where the term Passover comes from, it is because the angel of death or God's embodiment of wrath passed over the Jews, which is why they celebrate Passover. Um, so the Passover feast follows a, 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 what's called a Seder or, or a specific order. Seder means order. Now this order is very precise and it must be followed very closely to observe the Passover. The Passover meal begins when the matriarch, usually the mother of the home, lights the festival candles and recites a prayer. She says, Blessed are thou, Lord our God, master of the universe, who sanctifies us with thy commandments and commands us to kindle the light of the holiday. They read this, or they say this in Hebrew, generally, uh, before they light the candle. Now, it's important to note that although the patriarch, the father of the home, leads his family in worship, the mother, or the woman, is the one that lights the candle. Now, this is fitting that a woman would bring light into this festival since it was a woman who brought into the world the light of the world. This signifies what God promised through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. It also says in Isaiah 42, 6, that uh, it says, I, the Lord, that, uh, I have the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people of and a light for the Gentiles. So uh, a woman brings light into the world, so a woman starts this festival. Now, after the candles are lit and the prayers are recited, there are typically four questions that are asked by the children, uh, and, and the father answers them. For an example, this question, uh, one of the questions would be, what makes this night different from any other night? Uh, and the father uh, would respond, of course, this is all in Hebrew, and I can't pronounce Hebrew very well, so I'm not going to. Because this night, he would answer, because this night represents when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand. Now, after the questions and answers comes uh, the first cup of the Passover. This cup is known as the Kadush or um, the sanctification cup. Now, if you're, if you're Hebrew or, or Jewish, and I'm slaughtering these words, please forgive me. 
Um, but the observing of the Passover drink from this, uh, they, they drink from the sanctification cup first because it sanctifies everything that will follow. This is God's way of making everything holy. Like this is a holy ordinance. This is something we do and we practice that God commanded us to do. So we drink first from the sanctification cup. Next comes the carpus or the greens, which is usually parsley, and it is dipped into salt water. Now, what is the symbolism behind all of this? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Not only would you take the greens and dip it into the salt water and you eat it, the greens represents life, and salt water represents the tears that come with living a life of slavery and bondage. So Jews use this to symbolize the life of tears that they lived in Egyptian slavery. Christians, however, can be encouraged by this practice because it reminds us that those who have life in Christ are spared from the bitter tears of living a life of slavery to sin. We have been redeemed from a lifestyle that was leading us to death. So this is something that uh, is, I feel very important in the Passover. You, you, you drink from the sanctification cup, you eat the carpus or the greens that's dipped in salt water, and next comes the maror or, or bitter herb. Now, I probably... Uh, uh, mess that up. But anyway, Jewish homes generally use uh, horseradish as the bitter herb. Now, if we were observing the Passover, we would take the matzah or the unleavened bread and we would dip it into the maror and then we would eat it. Now, the symbolism behind this practice is to remind the Jews of how bitter it was to live a life of slavery in Egypt. And it kind of signifies that they should trust in the Lord. Jews were forced to live under the rule of a hard and cruel master. And when a person eats maror, not only do they clean, does it clean out your nasal passages, it also elicits an involuntary response from your body. You see, you cannot eat maror without tears coming to your eyes. These tears serve as a reminder of a bitter lifestyle. Um, and, and so uh, during the Last Supper, Jesus uh, had with his disciples... Uh, he, uh, he referred to the cup of maror in, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 23, when he said, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. He was talking about the bowl of maror, we believe. Now, we know that Judas is the one in which Jesus referred to. And when we typically observe communion, we don't pay attention to this passage. But, but think about the connection. Jesus was tasting the bitter herb, and he also brings up the fact that one of his disciples will be guilty of a bitter betrayal. This had to happen so that Jesus could be delivered unto death. But um, his disciples wanted to know, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And this is what he says in John 13, uh, 27 and 28. Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread. And when I have dipped it into the dish and handed it to him, then dipping this piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, and this is interesting, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. The scripture also tells us that Judas, after betraying Jesus, feels the full weight of his bitter betrayal and after weeping bitter tears, goes out and hangs himself, which bears some incredible sim symbolic similarities to when the bitter herb is tasted. And I think that's very interesting. Well, next comes the caroset. Now, I'll try to do this right. Caroset. You really got to get that in there. I don't know how to do that necessarily. But anyway, caroset. This represents, uh, or it's actually a mixture of apple, nuts, and wine, and it has a sweet taste. Now, uh, this represents the mortar that Jews used to make the bricks while they were slaves in Egypt. Now, you might be wondering, well, why then is it sweet? It's sweet because it reminds us that uh, their slavery came to an end. 
But it also serves as a powerful reminder to us that even the bitterest of life's struggles can be sweetened by the power of God. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 20, Verily I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. We, you will grieve, he tells them, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now it's also interesting to note that when you eat the caroset uh, after the maror, it's immediate, it immediately takes the bitter taste out of your mouth. So your bitterness is turned to sweetness. Next comes the hagiga, uh, which is in a bowl, it's, it's, a, it's a boiled egg. This egg shares the same name as the sacrifice that was made in the temple as a Lord once a year, which served as the purpose of covering sin. So we would take this egg, we would cut it, we distribute it, and before eating it, we would dip it into the salt water, which do you remember what the salt water represents? It represents tears. So the sacrifice uh, that, that we're dipping into the salt water, it is to remind us that it, is, it was a painful sacrifice that was made. Um, you know, a lot of times people, you know, when they were commanded, the Jews were commanded to take this, they had to, every single time, they had to have a lamb that was without blemish and an unbro- without any unbroken bones. So this would be a very valuable sacrifice. Now, much like the sacrifice that Jesus made was very painful to God, for he gave us his only begotten son. So after the egg, we would uh, observe uh, the zerora, which is the shank of lamb. Now, this lamb would remind us to look back uh, to the first lamb that was slain during the Passover. They would take the blood of the lamb and they would cover over the post of the door frames, uh, and then they were commanded to eat the lamb. Now, as they painted the door frames, they were commanded first to do the top, then to do each side. Now, if you were to uh, do this gesture with your hand where you painted the top of the frame and then went over to the side and then painted the other side, um, a, a lot of people have, have noted that this gesture makes the symbol of a cross. Now, again, this lamb could not have any blemish, and it could not have any broken bones. Well, consequently, when Jesus, the spotless lamb, was crucified, he would have normally had his legs broken. And the reason why is because this sped up the execution. You'd push up on your feet uh, to get a breath. And if you couldn't breathe, then you're going to die. So uh, normally they would have come in and broke Jesus' legs, but by the time they were going to do that and speed things up, his le- he was already dead. So there was no reason to break his legs. So Jesus uh, didn't have any broken bones, and he, just in doing that, fulfilled messianic, messianic prophecy. So next we would then take the second cup. After, after all of these things, we would then take the second cup or the cup of plagues. But instead of drinking from it, what we would do is we would dip our finger into it and pour out the wrath of God by making ten drops on our plate, one for each of the plagues uh, that was described in Israel. So we would frogs and wrath and lice and so on and so forth. So uh, the tenth plague was by far the worst plague of them all. Imagine losing your firstborn child because you don't have any of the lamb's blood covering your door mantle. Everyone who did was passed over by the angel of death. Consequently, anyone who has the blood of the lamb covering the mantle of their hearts as a follower of Christ, we know that that's what happens. We are spared from God's wrath and we will also have death pass over us as we will inherit eternal life. Now, another article of the Passover is called the Matzatosh. Now, this is a bag with three compartments in it, a top, middle, and a bottom. 
Uh, the three separate compartments has unleavened bread, which, if you haven't picked up on the subtle hints, is three in one. The matzotash is three in one. Now, this distinction uh, has much speculation in the Jewish community as to why it's three in one. Some Jewish rabbis suggest that it's the three in one of the patriarchs, which signify the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other rabbis argue that it doesn't represent the patriarchs, it represents the stations of Jewish worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. However, I believe that it represents the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the three things that you need to know about this bread, and that's, this is why I say that, this, this, this unleavened bread is especially important. Three things about it. First, it is unleavened. Remember that leaven or yeast represents sin. So it is without sin. Also, when it's cooked, it leaves stripes along the bread. So this bread is striped. And before it's cooked, it's tested for leaven by being pierced. So this unleavened bread, the sinless bread, is striped and it's pierced. Now, does that sound familiar? When Jews take the matzah from the matzotash, they not only take the bread, or they only take the bread from the second divider and they leave the first and the third. They then break this bread, get this, they wrap it up in linen, and then they hide it or bury it, and it becomes the afikomen, which means it comes later. It's hidden, and then the children of the home search for it, and until they find the afikomen, the supper cannot continue. Once it's found, it's then broken, and it's distributed around the table. Now, this is a question for Jewish rabbis. Why is the second portion of the matzah taken from the matzotash, and not the first and the third. Why is it then broken, wrapped in linen, buried, and brought back later? They would answer, well, we don't know. Because the truth is, is that doesn't have anything to do, it has no relation to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or the priests, the Levites, and the Jews. But if, if it relates to the triune God, we have an answer to that question. It was because the son, the second part of the triune God, the son was broken and killed, wrapped in linen, he was buried, and then he was brought back three days later. Jesus is the afikomen. He is the one who comes later. He is returned. And this gives incredible insight as to why Jesus raised the bread in Matthew 26, 26 and said, this, take this and eat. This is my body. So when Jesus did this, He's showing us that God knew in advance. The Jews had practiced the Passover every single year for 4,000 years. And they don't see the correlation, but we as followers of Jesus Christ can. This is, um, I believe, whenever Jesus raised the third cup, uh, which is known as the cup of redemption. In Luke twenty-two twenty, it says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, what new covenant is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah promised in Jeremiah 31, 31-34, he says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I have made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, which is what we know happens when a person receives the Holy Spirit. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or say to his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Well, that sure sounds like the new covenant or new testament that God made with followers of Christ. Jesus was telling his disciples when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. He's saying that this is new covenant that you have looked for and looked for for thousands of years. It has now come. In fact, it's here, right in front of you. This, this bread is my body and this, this, this cup is my blood. When observing the Passover, we would then sing a, a Jewish hymn of thanksgiving. And, and this is known as uh, the book of Psalms. And we would drink from the fourth cup with a cup of thanksgiving and praise. Passover, after each of these things is observed, it's always concluded the same way for a Jew because the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, They even leave an empty chair at the table with a full cup known as the cup of Elijah. This is the cup that's supposed to be given to the one that precedes the Messiah. So the Jews gather at the front door and they run and they open the front door and they say, Baruch Abai Hashem Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which consequently is exactly what they said about Jesus as he was riding the fowl of a donkey. So they wait and they hope, blessed be the name of the Lord, only to be disappointed year after year after year. And so then they say, Eshana Chabaka be Jerusalem, which means next year in Jerusalem. Probably butchered that, but it means next year in Jerusalem. He didn't come this year, so maybe next year. However, the Bible tells us that one has already come in the spirit of Elijah. His name was John the Baptizer, and he said in John 1.29, Behold, as he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's already preceded him, Scripture tells us. And the Messiah has already come. They just can't recognize it. That's the sweet irony of all of this. They, they desperately wait and hope for the Messiah to come. And they didn't even recognize him when he did. Next week, we're going to begin an extensive study on how the Holy Spirit works and, and what the significance of the day of Pentecost is and how it correlates with the Jewish holiday of the Passover because it's all connected. It's really cool. But today, I, I want to conclude by trying to comfort you if you have any mixed feelings about the Passover. Now, if you haven't noticed by now, the way that we take communion pales in comparison to the Passover feast. We observe a, a communion that's kind of like an Americanized sort of the Lord's Supper. It's quick and it's convenient. And you might have even had some mixed feelings about that. And if you do, I think that's good. You should. However, my goal here is not to condemn you or even frustrate you. On April 10th, Erin and I will be driving to her parents' house so that we can observe the Passover. And if you've never seen it done and you're interested, I would encourage you to tag along with us and witness it firsthand. 
If, however, you're still you're still saying to yourself, "Well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to do that," then that's that's okay. That's that's up to you. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to step in between you and the Lord, and and I'm not going to send guilt and condemnation your way because I don't think that that's my role. I think I think that's the role of the Holy Spirit uh, to to convict us. You know, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about not observing an ancient tradition. This message uh, was not to do that. This message was to educate and encourage you about the great power of our Lord. <laughs> that, that, that God, uh, he weaved a message of Christ into Jewish Passover that Jews to this day still refuse to recognize. This is not about, about keeping a list of traditions. It's about having faith in Christ. I think God, personally, I think that God told them, do not miss this tradition. Do not forget about observing it every single year because he wanted them to see that Jesus is the answer for the Passover. He's saying, hey, you remember how I rescued you from Egypt and bondage of slavery and sin? Well, get ready because I'm about to do a huge redemption of sin through my son, Jesus Christ. So I'm confident that, that if you seek the Lord on this issue and you follow the conviction and direction of the Holy Spirit, that God will show you and he will communicate to you whether you need to observe this or not. One thing should be abundantly clear. God is awesome. How he has left his thumbprint upon history and provided salvation through his son for all people groups shows that he is worthy of our adoration and our praise. Today, as usual, I, I want to end with a passage of scripture that I believe accurately describes where we can go from here. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in, through the one he loves. In him, we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times had reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.